BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host. The man you've come to listen to, though, that's the namesake, Victor Davis Hanson. He is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. He has a website, an official website, The Blade of Perseus. Its web address is victorhanson.com, and I'll tell you more about that later in uh, this episode a smorgasbord of interesting things, I think, Victor, to get your thoughts on, um, including a couple of prison stories, Juicy, Jesse, whatever, how are you? <laughs> I thought Juicy was a strange way to say it. Smollett, though, the man of the two bleach at two degrees. Um, looks like he'll be going to jail. Speaking of jail, Derek Chauvin, who was the police officer convicted for killing George Floyd. He himself almost met with death in a prison uh, this past week. By the way, we're recording on the 2nd of December. I'm pretty sure this episode will be out on the 7th of December, which I'm pretty sure is also the beginning of Hanukkah. So we well, wish our brothers and sisters in Abraham a happy Happy Hanukkah, Victor. There's also um, some Irish things to bring up, and uh, if we have time, maybe maybe something else. Well, let's get let's start off with some of this prison-related material, and do that right after these important messages. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Dot edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So, Victor, on the Smollett um, story, which we've talked about many times in the past, but, you know, he was convicted, but 
he never went to jail because he was appealing. And now it seems like his last appeal has been rejected. And Juicy Smollett, the hoaxer and fabricator of a bogus race attack crime, will be going to prison. And to my mind, offsetting that, when we talk about quote unquote race crimes, is Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis police officer who famously, infamously had his knee on the neck of George Floyd, who died and created a summer of chaos and riots. He, of course, was convicted and sent to prison. And in, he's in a federal prison in Tucson, a Tucson area. And he was stabbed to death, uh, not to death, he was stabbed 22 times on Black Friday, which was done intentionally because it was black and by a by a, a fellow prisoner as some symbolic attempt at, you know, to murder him for his role in the George Floyd uh, death. So, Victor, uh, not necessarily connected, but connected by prison. Your thoughts on both of these topics? Well, you know what? I don't know. I, I you know, I gave a talk on the at the Reagan Library and I mentioned Ju Juicy Smollett. So you hear you had this guy. And he told us that he was walking in the early morning in subarctic temperatures in Chicago in a left wing uh, hip neighborhood. And he wanted to go get a subway sandwich and. On his way, he gets the sandwich and he's walking back. Two white guys, Jack, they just happen to be wearing MAGA hats and they're roaming this left wing neighborhood and they're fans of Empire, this black uh, series TV. They're, they're just fans and they happen to see him. But you see, they don't just happen to see him. They were walking around scouting out for black young men because they've come armed with bleach so they can bleach him white and a noose to lynch him. So they see Juicy. And what do they do, Jack? They start making fun of empire. I think they use the F word, F empire. And then they confront him. And they're big. They're big. And Juicy has the sandwich in one hand and his cell phone in the other. And because he's so you, well, actually, he's quite diminutive, but he beats off these two thugs. However, they do get the neck, the noose around his neck and they do hit him. And then he chases them off and he gets back to his apartment and the police come and they see the bruise and they see the noose, but they don't. He doesn't want to give them his cell phone. That's what we know. And apparently, Juicy breaks the laws of physics because bleach did not freeze at 20 below, which I think it was that night. He's been able to manipulate the laws of chemistry, I suppose. And when this gets known, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, Diane, uh, Nancy Pelosi, this is horrible. This is what we told you about racist America. So everybody was suspicious that was sane and said, no, this is a has-been actor who's gay and he's trying to become a chauffeur, a black gay victim. And there's no likelihood that white people watch 
uh, white MAGA people, excuse me, watch this black series. So they wouldn't even know who he is or empire. And much less would they be walking in a black neighborhood at two in the morning in Chicago. And much less would they walk around with a noose and much less would they be carrying bleach. And if they did carry bleach, it would be subject to the laws of chemistry and freeze if they had it. And they much less would two big guys be able to be beaten off by a guy with just his feet free, who's half their size. And yet they believed all that. So then it unraveled. Of course, it was a lie. He put the, he, he staged the whole thing. He staged the whole thing to the degree that he hired his trainers, two twins from Africa who were big and muscular to uh, put on a MAGA mask and we even have the video where they go into the store and they buy the materials, the, the rope, bleach, etc. We even know that he, Jackie wrote a check out to him to pay them. And then we have their testimony. And he's never apologized for that. He, uh, putting the nation through this racially tense incendiary period that he caused. And the DA dropped the charges. And Cory Booker never said, I'm sorry. And Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States, never said, I'm sorry. And we were supposed to say, you know what? From time to time, given the racist history of this country, Jack, people have expressed a cry of the heart. Juicy Smollett, the victims of the Covington kids, the victims of the Duke lacrosse, the victims of Tawana Brawley, uh, these victims like all these people. And sometimes, you know, you rigid, rational, stupid white people demand evidence and facts, but you don't understand. You created these people. You created their desperation. And yes, sometimes they have to have faulty memories. They don't get the story right of the attacks, but you can't prove that it did not happen. So we're not going to apologize. And we have nothing to answer for that we caused nationwide racial tensions to spike. And prosecutors have a duty to drop those charges. Yeah. And that's that's where we are today. And then finally, the hoaxing, the, yeah, outside prosecutors. Well, this, there's so much race hoaxing, right? When, yeah. How many times have there been stories about nooses on the door? Of Stanford University. And, Stanford University. And then we find the noose was grown into a tree above Lake Laguna, Laguna. So, yeah. you know, it's it's always there. And then, you know, what happens with the, the hoax, the noose story? Remember the car driver who said that the garage rope or something was a noose? Yeah, the FBI agents were there the, yeah. uh, down at Daytona, I think, right? Yeah, I mean, and then we find out that there's a whole website about all of the, the, but the point is when they find out, nobody apologizes. Right. Nobody says this was a crime to uh, manipulate the justice system and to try to incite racial tension. And there's no retractions. Well, it's not, I guess one of the thoughts I had, it may not be the greatest thought, was, they may all tinge on race one way or another, but they're not. Whatever the the bogus motivation is, the excuse of jo- Juicy Smollett, who is black, doesn't apply to these um, white 
people like the senator from, from Massachusetts or other, you know, whites who claim that they're Indian or that they're black, the crazy ass lady up in Washington state who was running the NAACP office. Like this hoaxing uh, stems from something on the, on the left that's just uh, crazed that uses race. Uh, and you're right, none of they get caught. They're not really all that apolo- apologetic. So uh, I, I, oh, they come up with crazy, crazy explanations. Yeah, well, they, the, you know what's so funny? People. You know what's so funny about this? And I'm doing this from memory, but all of the network news like MSNBC, CNN, and a lot of the liberal commentators, they when they got caught and they all ran with it, then they said what we jumped to conclusions was exactly what you guys did by doubting it when you jump to conclusion. And therefore, both sides suffer from informational bias. Uh, you have preset ideas, you're deductive. So you use ju- juicy. And I said, no, no, no. I had an open mind. Jack had an open mind. You listening had an open mind. It's only when we were told the stories in the first few hours that a diminutive black gay actor was accosted by two white MAGA people at three in the morning who happened to be walking around with a bleach can and a noose looking for people like Juicy Smollett as diehard fans of Empire that didn't like it and wanted his character removed. So they insulted him that that was so preposterous that empirically you could dismiss it in one nanosecond. That's what it is. But you see, when they get caught, like the Covington kids, and they say, well, you guys just jumped and just assume these white kids were innocent. You just assume that the lacrosse team was innocent. No, I didn't. I waited to see what happened. You didn't. And that's what's so alarming about it. Yeah. Even when they're caught, they try to project their own uh, prejudice and bias. The, the left, everybody should remember that. They project if Hillary Clinton... If she's hired Christopher Steele, a foreign national, which is illegal to do in a, in a campaign, and she's paying him money through Perkins Code, DNC, and Fusion GPS to create a phony dossier and then seed it with the FBI and use Mr. Dushenko, use Russian sources, then what do you do? You say that Donald Trump is colluding with Russia. Right. And, that, and, that, and that's how they operate. And that's what yeah. they did with Juicy Smollett. They tried to turn it around. Egregious on the uh, in this area is take Brian Williams, who got caught for, it wasn't race. It was just that this kind of like a stolen valor story. I mean, this helicopter covering a shot. He, he gets caught. He gets exposed. He loses his gig. Uh, running uh, NBC Nightly News, but he doesn't go off to become a potato farmer somewhere. Not knocking potato farmers, by the way. God bless him. Um, but he ends up with another job at NBC, uh, and, and particularly is a profession where you're supposed to be a true truth teller. And even that, they don't. The shame, you know, you, the you shame know, is not yeah, there. I know it. I was watching. You know, every to get an idea of how the left covers it. I look at these stories and I look at the bylines on Reuters and AP, APP, Associated Press, and I look at uh, the BBC, 
Washington Post. And I see these people, many of them for the Middle East, that told us that 500 people had been slaughtered and a, and a hospital leveled by a deliberate uh, Israeli bomb that was targeting a hospital with the pretext that there was a tunnel, which didn't exist, I hear. And then when they're told that, no, they have satellite imagery, they have computer trajectory imagery, they have U.S. intelligence, and they have the actual words of Hamas people intercepted, that this was an Islamic jihad rocket that fell short and hit a parking lot and killed maybe 50 to 200 people, not 500, and not a hospital, and not Israeli. And there is a tunnel complex, in fact, under the grounds around the hospital. They're completely discredited. And what do we learn? One nanosecond later, they're lecturing us in their news reports. 14,000 citizens in Gaza slaughtered by the Israelis, according to health authorities. No, according to Hamas propaganda machine that has fooled you and disgraced you and humiliated you and you have no credibility. They have no shame. They're right back at it. Well, Victor, um, I also brought up, I don't know if you want to comment on it, uh, Derek Chauvin, the the, uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis police officer who was, uh, you know, on uh, on the verge of death himself for being... uh, uh, stab because he is Derek Chauvin because of his role in George Floyd was. Do, are we really surprised that, no. that this could, could have has happened? Uh, and, no, I mean, and I think the family of George Floyd was. I don't say delighted, but they didn't comment. The whole point of the whole George Floyd thing was that picture of Chauvin indifferent to the knee on George Floyd's neck. Okay, and then the guy dies and everybody gets outraged. And we have 120 days of rioting, looting, arson, 35, 40 people killed, two billion dollars of damage, 1500 police officers wounded, attacks on the White House grounds, burning of the St. John's Church, uh, torching of a federal courthouse, torching of a pre all. Everybody just says that's all justified because of that facial expression. And then when the initial autopsy, we had that sexual harassment suit recently. We got all this information out. We had that documentary, The Fall of Minneapolis. It all comes back out that the autopsies taken before they knew that it would be that controversial show that it was likely that he did not die of a compression wound to the trachea and that that was an approved hold to stop people like George Floyd, who are big and disruptive, confirmed by the final release of the body cam that show him resisting arrest, then show that he suffered from advanced heart disease and he had dangerous levels of fentanyl and he'd had the same situation happen in an earlier stop and he was in the process of passing counterfeit bills, which drew the attention of the police. And when the ambulance was called, they either didn't know what to do or they came 20 minutes late. And he had a long record of a felon and had put a gun in a home invasion to a pregnant woman's stomach. And somehow he ended up with angel wings. 
And out of all places, even in Kabul, Afghanistan, as we fled, there was a mural of him. That was the story. But it doesn't matter, you see, because Derek Chauvin either was bragging or he didn't know how he looked. But he's standing there with this knee on this man who died. And that's all it took. And so in the, the left wing mind, all of the 120 days of violence was justified. And the fact that he was almost killed was justified. And that anybody who tries to look at the actual story and the details and the context is called a racist and nobody wants to get near it. You just right. It's kind of like saying there were a lot of ballots that may have been cast by people who were not registered legally on election day. You say that and you're persona non grata, you'll be fired. Or if you say, I think the Moderna, Pfizer, mRNA, they're not going to be uh, 96% protective of being infected or being infectious very long. If you had said that in 2021, I don't know, August, you would be persona non grata. And that's the way we do it in, yeah. our, in this mass democracy, you know. It's, it's sort of what, if you read Tocqueville's Democracy in America or, I don't know, Aristotle's book for the politics is exactly what they, they, they warn you about. They say that democracy of a particular kind is very good. Landed democracy, people who are responsible, people that have checks and balances on their, their hysterical expression. But you get into type one of democracy, a mobocracy, an ochlocracy. And it's pretty dangerous. And that's right. what happened. That's what happens. Mass hysteria. We had mass hysteria with George Floyd and that BLM was took advantage of it. Antifa took advantage of it. Kamala Harris said, I mean, if you apply the standards of what Donald Trump said on January 6th, now it's time to walk over to the Capitol and protest peacefully. And that was a reckless thing to say when there were that many people around. And then you take it what she said right after the violence that had resulted in trying to get to the president of the United States and swarm the White House grounds that sent Trump and his family into a bunker. And she said, these protests are not going to stop and nor should they stop. And they're going to keep going on all the way to Election Day. And then you look at this morally bankrupt media and quote unquote fact checkers who did every type of Foucauldian postmodern twist and massaging said she really didn't mean that she never actually said violent protest she just meant protest and did they apply that contextualization when trump said march over to the capitol it was like the charlottesville when he said there were good people on both sides and they're bad people i'm not talking about the nazis and they cut out everything and said good people on both sides he, he's including nazis and that's what the left does and Anyway, well, you know, Adams, uh, John Adams said uh, this project, this uh, experiment of ours, America was could only work if there was a virtuous people. So you're right. Man. <laughs> Unless you have I mean, democracy is, is it doesn't work when you bring 27 percent of the state of California. The people were not born in the United States and they were eager to come here and you do not offer them the opportunity of civic education. You don't say to the immigrant from the Punjab, 
from Vietnam, from Honduras, from Oaxaca. Look, you voted with your feet to come here. This is the national anthem. This is God bless America. This is America. The beauty. Your kids are going to be singing this till they memorize it. This is the Pledge of Allegiance. You're going to learn that at six. This is the Constitution. You're going to learn that at seven. And then at eight, this was Iwo Jima. This was the Battle of Shiloh. This was the War of 1812. This is... Uh, my country tis of thee. Teach them all of that. And if you don't do that and you don't inculcate a love of the country they voted themselves to accept, then you get what we have now. You get Jesse Smollett and you get 120 days of rioting and looting and you get Antifa and you get BLM uh, blank blank and you get people celebrating uh, from the Middle East, especially October 7th. You come over yeah. from the Middle East and you say to yourself, I don't like to live in Syria. They'll, they'll put me in jail if I protest. I don't like to live in Egypt. I, have, I, I, I can't criticize the government. I don't like to live in Gaza. I'm gay. I don't like to live in Nablus because if I, I do and, and I'm a woman and I wear a bikini, I'm in trouble. I don't like to live in Saudi Arabia. I want to be a Christian and I, I'll, I'll be killed or beheaded. I don't like to live in Iran. It's too dangerous. But I do want to live in the United States. And I come over here and guess what? It's prosperous. It's secure. It's free. And everybody thinks I'm a marginalized person with grievances against my host automatically. I'm a person of color, I'm a Mideasterner, and those white Jew oppressors, I'm going to go out and shut down the Manhattan Bridge. I'm going to interrupt a tree lighting ceremony. I'm going to corner a bunch of Jews in a library. I'm going to hit a Jewish guy over the head and knock him out and kill him. And you know what? That's And if anybody says to me, if you want to do all that, why don't you go back to the country you're demonstrating on behalf of, and you'll have everything you want. You won't have to bother us here, and you won't right. be bothered. And if you say that, oh, man, you're a xenophobia, you're, you're a native, nativist, you're a racist, and that's where we are. It's just so crazy. If you come over to the United States and you want to live here and become a citizen, then acculturate and learn our protocols and values. It used to be when an immigrant came over here and they studied to pass the citizenship test and they were so happy to leave i don't know communist hungary or communist cuba or communist nigeria whatever they love this country and they right. became hyper patriotic and they became workaholics and they were more american than we are it wasn't oh what do I get out of your country? Where is my free phone? Where's my free hotel? Where's my free EBT card? And oh, by the way, this is a racist country and I'm the other and I have, you know, claims. And I, I as an illegal alien, I don't think that you're treating me very well. And I'm going to wave my Mexican flag because I never want to go back there. And I'm going to step on the American flag and try, if I'm a Palestinian, I'm going to try to shimmy up a pole on Veterans Day and destroy this flag uh, because uh, I want to stay in the United States. And I'm going to wave the Palestinian flag because under no circumstances would I ever want to go back to Gaza. And that's where we are, complete. I don't know, psychedelics. <laughs> I don't know any other yeah. term for it. Yeah. Kaleidoscope. Uh, hey, Victor, I'd like to take a minute uh, to welcome back 
one of our uh, sponsors for the Victor Davis Hanson show, and that's Hillsdale College. I think you've heard of that place, Victor. I have. I'm worried. <laughs> I'm worried about Hillsdale because I don't know. Think they can. How can a school of 1600 Jack handle all of the massive applications? Yeah. Everybody in the United States is saying, ain't going to send my kid to Princeton, Yale, Harvard, Stanford and get indoctrinated. If I'm Jewish, I don't afraid of their safety. Where is a place saying, where is there a traditional curriculum? Right. Where, where is it academically rigorous? Where is free speech and dissent? To, oh, Hillsdale College. I'm going to send my child there. Yeah, so, and and it doesn't uh, relative to other private institutions, it doesn't break the bank. It's, uh, it's the better it is, the cheaper it is, and there's no DEI czar to monitor you and monitor your speech. So they're getting swarmed by interest, and I don't I don't know what to tell them or yeah. because they have a conservative signature, but they're getting there's a lot of people who don't want to send their kid to Harvard or Stanford or Princeton or Yale who are very left wing. And they think, wow, this place may be conservative, but my child will be safe. My child will meet people who are normal. My child will get a rigorous education in Shakespeare. They'll read Gibbon. They'll know mathematics. That's the place I want my child. But my child is hard left. And maybe they can take over the campus. <laughs> That's what well, I think would be happening. The, well, I'm going to. We'll get to reading. This is an ad. I'm going to read for Hillsdale. We'll get to it in a minute. But I can't help but ask since you raise this. Did you read the news that came out in the last day or two about Felicity Huffman, the actress, now recounting about her why she was engaged in that scam uh, to inflate her daughter's SAT uh, scores, and you know she went to prison. I don't know, maybe for a month or so. But she did you see that her that I, came out was interviewed on ABC? But I, I, I just saw that she said she didn't she say something like it was on dying shame or something or I, I, I didn't. That's all I did. I didn't read it. I just thought she oh, well, finally she, confessed that she was shame, shame, shame by what she did. Well, I don't know how shame she was because she, uh, she, she said she had, had to, to break the it. law. Yeah, she had to yeah. break the law. Yeah, because why? If my daughter didn't go to this elite institution with the proper branding, life was not worth living, something like that. And then essentially she threw her daughter under a bus again. Like she wasn't smart enough to to get into a decent, decent place. I mean, uh, I'm kind of a, I, I must say, originally, I thought, she all uh, she did it all because she was what the proverbial good mother. She said that earlier. That's right. yeah, the, yeah. Good, the good mother, right? Right. And her only problem was this, Jack. She did it too soon. She she thought you still had. And she she tried to get her daughter in when there were standards. Right. There was SAT right. scores right. required. Right. Correct. And and she had to. Didn't she pay somebody to take the SAT test? She paid. No, he well, she paid this guy to to do the you know a year's worth of work to get the scores up, but then the guy comes to her and says, "She doesn't, she's not going to cut it." So that's when she paid him, but to, just think to but, doctor the scores. I think yeah. she could get out on appeal because she could say, "Well, yeah, the, you you required the SAT, so I cheated, but now you all dropped it because you admit the SAT was racist." It's bias. So how can you hold me culpable for trying to pass or fudge on a test that you admit is biased and unfair to people? So I thought it would be unfair to my daughter. 
because because you're being bad. I was being bad in reaction. So I'm innocent. And then she could have said, if I had just waited a year, since there's no comparative GPA really standard and there's no SAT, I could have just hired a person to write a DEI essay about how I went over to Nigeria and I helped build a well and I discovered that I'm half black. And then I would have got in. And it's really hard how you you're getting somebody for cheating to get in under a former uh, a former criteria that no longer exist, no longer exists. So today, wow. if you want to cheat to get into Harvard or Yale or Princeton, you don't have to worry about taking a have a surrogate take your SAT. You don't have to worry of inflating your GPA. They're not going to use it. All you have to do is go the Elizabeth Warren, Rachel Dozell, Ward Churchill. And maybe you, I guess you could get, I've been told that a lot of people send in their DNA, you know, uh, you know, those online deals. Oh, sure. Yeah. I'm 12% Tunisian. I'm yeah. a minority, right? Well, yeah. I mean, Elizabeth Warren said that when you have what, 0.2, is it even 0.2, 0.02 Native American, that proves you've got some Native American ancestry. One over 1,024. I think that's. The, yeah. And the, she yeah. she's in the Harvard. Remember, she was the first Native American Harvard professor with high yeah. cheekbones. So, yeah, I think these poor people, I mean, they spent, I don't know how many days in jail and they had to pay a little fine and they were humiliated. All they did was uh, go cheat the old standards and break the old rules that the university themselves say now were bankrupt, unnecessary, racist. And all they were going to do now, the next generation of Hollywood bankrupt, amoral actors that want to get their kids in, they don't have to go through that. All they have to do is fake a minority identity. Right. Well, thank you for all that. But now back to Hillsdale. And to our listeners, listen, dear listeners, did you know that Victor is one of the professors in three of over 40 free, I said free, online courses at Hillsdale College? And that is true. Here's the first course, American Citizenship and Its Decline. And that's based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism and Globalization are destroying the idea of America. The second course is the Second World Wars, and that's based on Victor's book by the same name. And the third and final course is Athens and Sparta. Sparta, I said that with a Bronx accent. Sparta, which is partly based on Victor's book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. These courses are seven to nine episodes long, and they are self-paced, so you can take them Whenever and wherever, go right now, or wait till the show's over, but go to right now to hillsdale.edu slash VDH to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash VDH to start, hillsdale.edu slash VDH. And we thank the good people at Hillsdale College for sponsoring this episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Okay, Victor, let's go from Hillsdale, Michigan to Capitol Hill. Two stories worthy of getting your thoughts. One is um, that uh, Hunter Biden has been uh, 
uh, you know, subpoenaed to testify before the House Oversight Committee. And unlike you and me, Victor, if we were subpoenaed, I don't know what kind of special grounds uh, we would have to dally or to off put uh, put off. But uh, so there's some there's been tension back and forth between uh, uh, Hunter Biden's lawyers and the House Committee. Again, I know he's the son of the president, but I don't know where he has special citizenship status uh, status. And so that's one Capitol Hill story. And the other is uh, has to do with foreign policy, where the House of Representatives voted to block um, Joe Biden's, uh, you know, the access blocking Iran uh, from accessing the six billion dollars that the Biden administration uh, made available to uh, to Iran and and to uh, uh, swap for uh, the six, uh, I'll call them hostages. So, uh, Victor, again, we're recording on Saturday. The the second some events may have happened between now, then, and now when this is being broadcast. But that said, your thoughts, Victor, on hunters, Hunter. hunters, and then on the House action on Iran. I don't remember. Do you on January sixth that when they called in every possible conservative to the January sixth committee, they started giving them orders about the conditions under which they testify. I don't. And when they refused, I think Stephen Steve Bannon. I mean, they they tried to put him in jail, or they did jail him. So I don't think Hunter's in any position to give anybody orders about anything. But his his strategy now with this lawyer that he has is to go on the offensive as the victim, which is always a good idea in America, post-modern America. So he's suggesting they're pick, they're picking on him. And, and by the way, those pictures now on the laptop, that guy who did it, he's really did a good job. And there's a book out. I got a copy of it where everything in the laptop, Jack, is cataloged and footnoted. All the and the, it's not lurid. The pictures that are pornographic have are brushed out, fuzzed out, so you cannot this see. This is Marco Marco Polo. Yes, yeah. Okay. He was he worked in, I think in the Trump White House, but yeah, he spent his life. I mean, it's kind of academic. There's footnoted and every communication, every text, every email is there. It'd be a huge it's, book. It I is. Mean. It is. It is. I was looking through it and. You look at that, and this guy, um, there are evidence of felonies on every page, whether text about money coming in from foreign sources or distribution or solicitation of prostitution or uh, drug use. And, and um, you know, it's the same old Biden story as we talked before, can't keep a you 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 take a laptop with that type of incriminating personal information and just leave it at some computer store and you sign a contract basically to get to drop it off that if you don't pick it up it becomes the owner's property in comp- recompense of the time he spent on it and then you try to sue him or you try to defame him when he owns it and the same thing with Ashley 
Biden's diary. You just leave your body. You just write about all these intimate things about the president of the United States taking a shower with him when you shouldn't be doing it as a child. And then you're so whacked out or irresponsible. You leave it in an apartment and then somebody finds it, tries to peddle it or get it. And then you go after them or the same thing with Hunter and his gun or the same thing with Frank Biden and his nude selfies, uh, selfie pictures that show up on a porno site or the same thing with Joe Biden who prances around in front of it, Secret Service female agents nude or the same thing with uh, Hunter who, as I said, can't keep his pants on and takes selfies of his own genitalia. So something's wrong there. I don't need to get into it just to say there's something wrong with that family. And this is from the left. And remember, every I owe every I know every, as a reader of American news, I know every detail about the stormy Daniels sordid affair, thanks to the left. And they were, you know, they thought this was important for everybody to know, but they don't even discuss any of this. It's all, anybody who sees this and knows about it is purient or culpable for even mentioning it. So that's the story on that. It's and uh, I don't have much to say about Hunter Biden other than I, I get back to that thing I've beaten to death that he has some sick relationship with his father. He mentions it on the the anger that he is the dirty bag man who had to arrange the deals, had to carry out the messy transference of funds, had to disguise uh, the distribution. And his dad, after all of his work, he, he got Mr. 10%. In some cases, he complained. He takes half and he gets his bill, his household utility bills paid, remodeling done by Hunter. And he's really angry. And then he decides, you know what? I am sick and tired of me being the bad guy. And if I get in trouble with the IRS, I'm having my lawyer bring in my dad, the president, to testify, dad. How do you like that? Or if I get in trouble, I'm going to start painting with my uh, mouth to remind everybody that I'm a cokehead and I'm going to make paint by the numbers awful art. And I'm going to peddle it for half a million bucks to get for people who want to gain access to you. And what are you going to do about it? And I'm going to tell everybody in my family, if you've got coke, go to the White House, they're, they're, you know, leave it in a little thing. That's how he, that's how destructive he is. And uh, that's why they're terrified of him, because he's capable of anything. And well, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, I think, no. when it comes to destructive, because what has been more destructive? I just think I think it's in the family DNA. Joe Biden's pulling out of Afghanistan. Is, has there been a more destructive action no. taken by a president? He didn't care. He didn't care about anybody. He didn't care hey. that he left thousands of people that had worked with us and were Americans as well there. He didn't care that we blew up innocence. And then I think uh, righteous hit, my, my uh, Millie called it. And then we don't care that 13 people were blown up. We don't care that while all this was happening, we were politically correct with our pride flags and our George Floyd murals and our gender studies. And we had to reassure the world that when we were in shame and humiliation flying out of Kabul, that when people landed who were of Afghan ancestries, guess what? We had correct Mediterranean cuisine waiting for them. 
So that's just like we have the right pronouns for the illegal aliens that come into our country without audit. That's how sick this administration is. Yeah. Well, Victor, on from uh, Hunter Biden uh, to another uh, travesty of international policy, and that's Biden slash Obama, and that's Iran, but... Well, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't understand that at all. Is it Valerie Jarrett, or what? What is it about Iran? John Kerry was fixated on Iran. Anthony Blinken is fixated on Iran. Obama was fixated. Biden is fixated. Well, what is it about the theocratic? It's not, it's, it's not Israel. I think that's what. I, I guess they like it because Rafin Johnny, I think, in two thousand two, reportedly said that it was kind of a good thing that half the world's Jews of the 15 or 16 million Jews in the world, more than half were in Israel because therefore it was a one bomb state. He said that supposedly. Yeah. Yeah. And how would you ever, why would you want to empower that? Why would you want to give them $6 billion? Why would you want to pay, if you're going to tell Iran that you're going to pay 1.2 billion per hostage, maybe they might tell Hamas, you know what? The Americans and by association, their client, the Israelis will pay a lot of stuff. If when you go in and murder as many Jews as you can, take back 240 hostages, we'll pay you a bounty on each one and they'll pay you money or you'll be able to get away with murder. Take away the 240 hostages and there would be no Hamas alive today. They would be history. And that starts when you start doing what we did. Why would you want to give them $50 billion windfall in oil sales? I don't understand that. And why would you be fighting your own Senate to release money for these terrorists? It, I don't understand that. I, I, I just, I don't get it. I don't know why, what the fascination that John Kerry had for Iran or Anthony Blinken has or Biden has. I understand Obama. I do. Because he had a theory that he was going to empower Tehran, Beirut, Damascus, Gaza City, and therefore tell the Israelis and the Saudis and the Jordanians, ah, I don't need you. I have my own little constituency, the Shia Crescent, and that's going to be creative tension between the two of you. And every once in a while, uh, when one side gets more powerful than the other, Barack Obama, the Lord and Savior, is going to come in and try to adjudicate Creative tension. That was the idea of empowering murders and thugs. Well, Victor, the word on the street is that you have some Irish heritage. And we're going to we're going to use that as a touch, as a jumping off point to get some thoughts about insanity happening, I think, in uh, Ireland. Insanity of the American woke kind. And we'll get to that right after. Uh, these important messages. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Back with the Victor Davis Hanson show before, Victor, we b- both show our Irish a little bit here. Uh, do want to remind our listeners to visit your website, The Blade of Purse. The web address is victorhanson.com. Why would you go there? Well, you're a fan of Victor's writings, and 
Victor's appearances, and you'll find links to appearances, say the Megan Kelly podcast and other uh, other. Uh, I mean, maybe maybe up there right now it might be your appearance on Ricochet with say Peter Robinson. The archives of these podcasts, your writings for your syndicated columns, weekly column, your weekly essay in American Greatness, and then the ultra articles. And you cannot read them. You'll want to read them, but you cannot read them unless you subscribe. Five bucks for the month gets you in the door or discounted annually for $50. There are about two or three ultra pieces written by Victor every week. So if you're a fan of Victor's writings, you'll want to, you'll want to do this. That's victorhanson.com, The Blade of Perseus. And while you're there, by the way, uh, do... Um, do check out some of Victor's books. I've said this on previous podcasts. We are uh, Christians. We are here uh, in the Advent season. Christmas is coming, and Hanukkah is is here. I heartily recommend checking out some of Victor's books, Savior Generals, uh, the Second World Wars, and others, particularly for those in your life who would our history buffs uh, make great, they, these will make great uh, Christmas presents and Hanukkah presents. If there are Hanukkah presents, I believe there might be. Anyway, Victor, oh, Hansen, um, there's <laughs> madness happening over in, in Ireland. So woke, so damn woke. The country has really done a 180 on its heritage uh, in very, very short, short order. But a, a terrible uh, incident in uh, that incident uh, happened um, with some involving some illegal immigrant or migrant and the Irish, uh, you know, the deplorable Irish got their Irish up and they protested. And that got the hackles up of the Irish elite who you cannot find more woke elite than, than there are in Ireland. And, you know, now it's it's uh, I believe the justice minister there said it's a crime to say, Irish lives matter. It's in, they do not have, many countries do not have our, it's admitted, our free speech, American free speech heritage. But still, if you're Irish, you can't say Irish lives matter um, because they don't matter to the elite. I don't think so. Anyway, Victor, I know you've looked at this a little bit. Well, that, that comes from, I mean, most of the bad ideas in the world come from the United States first. So that came from all lives matter. And you can't say anything matters except Black Lives Matter. And that I don't understand that Prime Minister Leo, what was his name? Vera Carr, Varad Carr. He's half Indian. He's the first gay. Varad, Varad Carr. Varad Carr, excuse me. And he's the first gay. I get that. He's the first in, half Indian or Indian, non-full Irish. And he he's just is un incapable of saying anything intelligent. I mean, I, I, I think Jack, he's a conservative or what passes for a conservative in Ireland, which is probably left wing in the United States. But he, he didn't he say Israel, what it's doing borders on revenge. <laughs> I thought you think <laughs> you come in and they kill and mutilate and decapitate and commit necrophilia and you have to stop them from doing it because they promise to do it all the time and when you go in to stop hamas you might think that it's a little bit of revenge <laughs> i think so also then, victor the girl the refuge the girl who was uh, um yeah law, no she she was not 
kidnapped. She was lost. She was lost. Yeah. Yeah. And they did not uh, barter terrorists, give up terrorists who'd hurt, maim, kill people to get her back because she just turned up. She was found. Somebody found her. She was wandering around somewhere, I guess, you know, just happened to walk across the border into Gaza, enjoyed the Gaza delights of at her young age. And then somebody said, hey, she's Irish. I found her. You know, it's kind of like an amber alert in Gaza. And so what does he think he was doing when he said that? We know what he was doing. He was trying to do what he's done this whole time, empathize with Hamas against Israel. I don't know. You mentioned Irish, you know, on my mother's side, I had a Grand, my grandfather, her father was Reese Davis. He was completely 100% Welsh. He looked like a Welshman. He's very white, ruddy, and prominent teeth, you know, front teeth. That's why I had braces. Uh, my parent, we all had really big, what do you call them, rabbit teeth? <laughs> well, Welsh, <Chompers>. yeah. <laughs> Chomper, choppers or chompers? Yeah, buck teeth or chompers. I know they called us Bucky Beavers in uh, first grade because we all had the Welsh teeth. But uh, my grandmother was 5'1", and her brother was 5'3", and she had uh, 12 members of her family and uh, uncles and aunts, and I don't think one of them was over 5'4". And they were Irish, and they were very sensitive about it. So we grew up with. Um, what uh, were they sensitive about being Irish or being being short? They, they, yeah, they conflated the two when they said, "Okay, I, yeah. I shouldn't say this because it sounds so illiberal." But my grandmother said to me, "Well, you're Swedish because you're six one." but at least you have monkey eyes like the Irish. And I said, what does that mean? And she said, your eyes are, your eyes are like mine. They're beautifully sunken into your skull. <laughs> and she called, it, she called them monkey eyes. And then she, uh, I, I know, but I thought, I, thought that, I thought that was terrible. And I thought that was a slot. Sl- and she was 100% Irish, so. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, okay. you know, and my father uh, was dark hair, and he was Swedish. He, he had olive complexion. And my grandmother had told me once, well, you know, they're black Irish, and they're, right. black, and they're black Swedish. And I don't know what she meant by that. I guess she thought that Corsairs had raided Scandinavia or something. I don't that was know. The, for the Irish, it's the Spanish, uh, the Spanish Span- fleet. <laughs> yeah, Spanish fleet, but whatever. Uh, in any case, uh, I don't know why that was, given that my father's uh, lineage, they, were, they more identified as Swedish. I think it's because they were more recent from Sweden than I identified as Welsh or Irish. I think it's probably you, you identify with your father's more than your mother because of the name. It's possible. Well, I think my twin brother named his child Leaf. And uh, when I, I named my uh, two children after my parents, William and Pauline, and I went to my mom and when my uh, son was born, I said, uh, uh, when my daughter was born, I said, I'm going to name her Freida, Freida Hansen, and I'm going to name my son Axel. And she said, over my dead body, you're going to do that. 
<laughs> the name said, some, so, okay. she was very funny she said something to the fake i put up with your father buying those awful little bug volvos that we had to drive used volvos you know 544 my dad would yeah. go around to junkyards and find these ladybug volvos that could hardly run and fix them up and then i i grew up with the 20 cups of coffee. I grew up with the butter cookies. I grew up with the rye crackers. I grew up with the Electrolux appliances, but I put my foot down. Um, you know, so, with, a, ax, by with the, the axle. We should, um, on a separate show, uh, it, may, it may be worth getting into, what, what's the insanity over names? By, by the way, I want to ask you a question about your mother. But my, my wife tells me about... Um, some kids she's involved. The, the names today are like one kid is Poseidon, and another <laughs> kid is Galaxy. These are first names, and like what the what has gone? What is it? Uh, names are not unimportant. And then of course you take a nor quote unquote normal name Michael, but nowadays you have players have to spell M Y K O L. That's Michael. What happened so, to, when I was when I was in high school? The prettiest girls. All were called Melinda or Marsha, often with a C instead of S-H-A. There was Linda, Marsha, Glenda, Melinda, right? Those were the names. They don't call people. I guess the prior generation was Agnes and Hazel, right? Nobody names uh, their kids Agnes or Hazel anymore. Well, in, in growing up in more Catholic communities, you did have... Orchard, you know the names of the apostles and and more. Have you ever met a Have you met a young person named Agnes? I haven't. No, no. Or Hazel? <laughs> no. I haven't heard Melinda. Have you, Melinda or Marcia? Or maybe sister-in-law Marcia, but she's she's not exactly as uh, she she's a little older than me and lovely. Love I love my sister-in-law. She's a great lady, but she isn't Marcia. Well, anyway, let me ask you about uh, quickly, Victor, if yes. you don't mind, we can yes. wrap up. Because uh, Sandra Day O'Connor uh, passed away uh, yesterday. We're, again, recording on the second. Did, did you, and she's a Stanford um, a law graduate. I'm just curious, did, did your mother know her at all? Did no, you know what? It was funny. Um, my mother was born. Sandra Day O'Connor died at 93 this week, and my yeah. mother was born 1922, so she would have been 101. So she was okay. eight years. I think my mother was the third woman. She graduated. Um, she, gra she, she went to University of Pacific and got a bachelor's degree because my father went there, and she was interested in him, and she followed him. She met him at Kingsburg High School. She was in Selma High School. She spent okay. a year at a community college and met him. And then he got a football scholarship, so she wanted she wanted to date him, I guess. And she went to University of Pacific. Then he got graduated and got he was in the Army Air Corps during World War II. Then she went to Stanford University and got a second BA, and then stayed for law school. And she graduated in nineteen forty six. Okay, she was. Uh, 20, she just turned, she was not yet 24. And it was very similar, though, because she immediately couldn't get a job. Imagine she had two BAs from Little Selma, California, and her sister, my grandfather mortgaged his farm, his little farm, because he didn't have, he didn't have a son. 
and his oldest was crippled with polio, terribly crippled. And he never went to college and his wife never went to college and they had no money and they thought they had to have somebody to help the farm. So he mortgaged about 60 acres and sent his oldest daughter to get a BA at Stanford and a master's. And she became my aunt, became a community college teacher. Unfortunately, that family, the Davis, all the women in that family, and this is, I'm scared, and my daughter, I guess, qualifies who passed away. They all had cancer. So my great grandma died of cancer. My three first cousins died of cancer. The Davis family, my aunt died of cancer at 49, who'd graduated from Stanford. My mother died at 65 from brain cancer. And it was kind of a gene. And my daughter died of cancer at 26. And I just pray that gene is not manifest in my surviving daughter. And all the men didn't die of cancer. But the point I'm making is that she came and became a community college teacher. Her name was Lucy Anna. She was a wonderful woman. She was wonderful. And my mother then came back and she couldn't get a job. She, she applied all over in 1946 and 7 in the Bay Area, everywhere. Nobody would hire a woman with a bachelor, two bachelor's degrees and a Stanford law degree. And she did very well on the bar first time. And she was highly ranked in her class. So she came back with my father. They had no money. And she uh, worked for a local law firm as a legal secretary for a couple of years. And then she had four children, one passed away. And then my older brother, my twin brother, and then she stayed home. In those days, you were considered derelict if you didn't stay home. And then she stayed home with us and raised us in this little 800 square foot farmhouse. And she had all this education. She was just a wonderful mother. I mean, she played us opera. She played us symphony. She talked about you're going to go to Stanford. You're going to go to Berkeley. You're going to go there. And education, education, education. And yet we had no money. And I'd always say, well, if you got all these degrees, why didn't you, why are we so poor? I would say that at eight. And the farm was doing very badly. And my dad was trying to farm and be a high school teacher. And then he went back and got a master's and went to a junior college, but he was doing both. And, and then all of a sudden at, uh, 40 years old, they opened a court of appeal in the Central Valley, and there was this very famous family, the McClatchy family, and one of the the matrons of that family had married a judge, her second marriage after her first husband died, C.K. McClatchy, uh, Philip Conley, and she went up and applied, and he happened to be actually kind of a visionary. He was about 65, and he hired a woman to be his chief legal researcher you know, uh, for the appellate court. They had three judges. It was a brand new court. So for 15 years uh, till she was 55, she did all of the research for the appellate court. And then Jerry Brown came in and he, he was under fire for Rosebird and and my mom was a Democrat, but she was on a farm. She was kind of conservative. She had children and that was an ideal selection. So he appointed her uh First female juvenile court judge, and then she was a superior court judge. And then she ended up as an appellate court judge where she had worked. And so she was, I think, the third appellate court female in 1975. And she had a wonderful career from 75 appellate court to 
she died in 1989 and of a brain tumor, which was told, we were told it was benign. It was a benign meningioma, and it actually was not. It was a, one of the rare malignant meningiomas. So she had a very tough two op brain operations and everything. Very heroic the way she did. She tried to work through it and... She was there. She when she was being mentioned as a possible, you know, California Supreme Court justice because she was the most senior uh, female justice in California. But the point I'm making is that when Sandra Day O'Connell got appointed, my mom was in these national appellate judges associate. So she went to Washington a lot and met her a lot, and they talked a lot. And oh, uh, okay. And uh, I met once her husband, and he was a very sweet guy. And um, I, I brought it up because Sandra Day O'Connor, not only that she was a Stanford Law grad, but she also uh, practiced in, in California, San Mateo, I think, area of, uh, for, for a number of years. But uh, anyway, well, that's cool. Yeah. And then she, I uh, looked at a lot of the letters that people wrote her when she was in law school. And, yeah. uh, the thing that I remember was when she told me that when she was a third-year law student, William Rehnquist, I'm pretty sure, and somebody can check that. I'm speaking from memory that uh, William Rehnquist had was a first-year graduate, uh, first-year uh, Stanford student, and he had been. Uh, when my mom was an undergraduate, he, I think he had been an undergraduate with her, younger, and then when she was. They used to call them LLBs before they had JDs. Yeah. And when she was getting her law degree, he was a first-year student. Lost, and she knew him and liked him, even though he was very conservative at that age. And she was from a populist, democratic, agrarian family. But she liked him. And so when he became a justice, and a lot of people in, at, at the court she knew were critical of him, she wasn't. She kind of liked him uh, because she had known him at, when she was a student, but wow. it was kind of on, I don't, the one thing I learned from her was not to be bitter. And I mean that because she would tell me that after she became a judge and she didn't do it till she was, I guess, 50 and or 40 something. And after all those years of working as a, you know, it was kind of rare in Fresno to have a BA and a JD from Stanford if you were a woman so early Right. And all these men over those years who were in big practices in the San Joaquin Valley, and she had applied when she was in her 20s. And she would always tell me that so-and-so came before me when she was a superior court, right, when she was a trial judge, or somebody came before me on appeal. She she never, she was very professional. She didn't talk about cases very much, but she did say, this person, I went and asked him for a job when I was 24, and he, he just snubbed me. This person never even talked to me. This person said I was incompetent because I was a woman, this, yeah. this, this. And now they're coming before me as an appellate court judge. But she never let it affect her, and she never got bitter about it. And she always would say, you know, I remember I said, I am – I'm 21 and I'm in the PhD program in classical languages and I've had three years of Greek and three years of Latin and everybody here had it in prep school and I'm trying to finish in three or four years. 
And I've been, you know, I'm pretty good at it, but I am not, I didn't grow up in prep school. I didn't go to Europe every summer. And she said, oh, come on, don't whine. If you want, if you want to do it, you'll do it. You'll be just outwork them. That's all she said. Outwork them, outstudy them and be the best Greek scholar there. Be the best you can be and don't worry about, never worry about other people. Just worry about yourself. So she was not bitter and it was very good advice. And she, uh, when she passed away, I was just surprised at how many um, conservative justices really liked her, even though she one thing she did was she was the first female appellate court in the whole Central Valley. So she made it a point to hire women. I don't think exclusionary, but when I would go up and visit her, each appellate judge had four or five lawyers attached to them. And she had all these young women that come out of law school. And I still see them now. They're in their 60s or 70s. Uh, the women that she hired. And that was kind of unusual that she, but the men didn't re regret it. And, and uh, she was very attractive. Everybody thinks her mother was attractive, but she was very, very attractive. And uh, my father was, because, you know, when you're the only woman and you're around male lawyers and male judges. Right. But my dad was six, four <laughs> and he weighed 220 and he was, a rough customer and had <laughs> fought all of his life in the army air force. And so I remember one time a justice, not a justice, a, a lawyer had said something like, I think he pinched her oh. rear end and she didn't know what to do. And she came home and she says, Oh, this, this lawyer pinched my rear end and I could feel it beneath my robes. And my father said, what was his name? So he, <laughs> next time he came up to the court and he walked over and he said, I tell you, I think you should pinch my rear end. Just pinch it, please. You like pinching rear ends, pinch mine. We'll see what happens. And he, <laughs> he never, he never pinched her again. The point I'm making is I wrote an article about that, about me too. I didn't mention yeah. any of this. I'm, I'm probably divulging embarrassing family history, but I said that part of the problem with me too is we didn't have family networks anymore that we didn't have cousins and brothers and male. And we, and when we were growing up, when you had women in your family yeah, and they went out on dates or they were, and boys treated them badly, you know, yeah. and they, they had a, uh, a deterrent, you know what I mean? Brothers and sisters that, I mean, brothers and fathers and uncles that oh, yeah. said, you screw with my, my sister, my daughter, my mother, you're going to be in big trouble. Yeah. And that, that was I, a deterrent effect on the, the bad, yeah. The pathological propensities of young men to take advantage of women. I engage you know, in some uh, family yeah, deterrence. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think yeah. a lot of the problem is, and I know people are going to get angry saying, well, Victor, women can be liberated and they just could live alone and we have only children. That's what we want. And you're back in the Stone Age. But anyway, I wrote an article back in Me Too uh, era. And I said, if we just had men that believed in chivalry anymore that said, uh, you're not going to treat my sister or my mother, my daughter, my niece in a way that's disrespectful for her. And I know that I shouldn't have to intervene because she's a capable, independent woman. But I'm just there in case that doesn't work out. I want to warn you. And I wrote that and I had a colleague at Hoover just tear me apart about how what a Neanderthal I was and sexist. And she actually tweeted what you're not supposed to do about fellow Hoover fellows. 
and she attacked me for writing that. Well, I, I, I won't mention her name, but she thought that that was sexist. I don't think it was sexist. Yeah. I thought it was enlightened. I, and I, and I, I, I have done, I've done that in my own. I've had a, students have come to me and said, this guy is in my class and he's stalking me. And I've always said it happened on two times out of 20 years. I had a very nice girl and she's. And she said, this guy sits in the back of the room. He looks at me. And then when I go out, he follows me. And I walked up and I said, you know, you do that again, you're going to be in big trouble. Yeah. I had another very nice student and her boyfriend came and he sat there next to her the whole time. And anytime she raised her hand, he glared at anybody who talked to her. You know, if I talk, if I called on her, he glared at me. If another student asked her, he glared at kind of a gang gang banger type guy. He sat in the class and I said, you get your blank blank out of this class. And never, and then he said, I know where you live. I, you know, that's a typical yeah. gang. I know, I know where you are. You better watch out. But I said, do your worst and I'll do my best. And we'll see who wins. But the point is that I think chivalry is an underestimated virtue. I wish it was back again. Yeah, I don't, I don't see it as condescension at all or patronization. I think it's helping women in a difficult uh, male environment that yeah. they're, when, women are independent. And I think that's great and equal, but it doesn't change human nature. And men being the stronger muscularly and physically, they tend to take advantage of women. So you yeah. need good hearted men to stick, you know, stick. I uh, I subscribe to your kind of Neanderthal, Victor. Uh, I do too. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it brings some degree of justice. I feel bad, you know. I I was in Washington D.C. Um, not this year, but two years ago, and I was walking back from an event. I probably shouldn't. Have, it was a long event, and there was a young woman walking ahead of me. It was about nine thirty at night, and I don't know if the neighborhood was good or bad, but I was walking behind her. And I think she was scared, right? Right. She could hear me. So I kind of walked to the side very fast. And I just said, I'm walking behind you. And if you don't mind, I'll walk at the same pace ahead of you. Because if anything, you know, this is a bad, might be a bad neighborhood. Yeah. And, and she said, thank you. But she was even scared of me for saying that, a stranger. But I did do that. And I thought, and it was kind of, it turned out there was a lot of, questionable characters but i think if everybody did that and it might be a safer world for women indeed well my friend it's been uh i'd love to see you write uh some essay on on chivalry I it's think the, anybody can look it up it's there I, i'll i'll next time i'll try to list it and okay. it, got, it got me in big trouble at the hoover institution apparently when when a fellow colleague attacked me uh, we'll see don't don't folks don't go looking for the tweets all right oh, they, oh excuse me they're not tweets they're x's as i've been as i've been lectured by some of our at least one of our listeners hey victor we're, we're at the end of the end of uh our gig here today i do want to thank our listeners all no matter what platform they come to the show via uh but those who do through i iTunes and Apple have the ability to rate the show zero to five stars and practically everyone gives Victor five stars deservedly. So we thank those who do that and particularly those who leave comments, all of which we read and here are two. 
uh, one is titled Dogs and Teacups. I'm not sure which episode he's referring to, but says, love this episode. I know my dog isn't the only canine to bark at random, so there must have been some background noise there, Victor. Also, I've heard in the background what I think is a cup being placed in a saucer. I like to think Victor is sitting at my table while we drink tea, and he talks of the wide world and his travels and insights. So profound for a Michigander, and this is signed by Retriever Buddy. And then the second... um, Comment is titled Housing Shortage, VDH, I Love Your Childhood Reminiscing, Extended Family Holiday Celebrations, Hot Coffee Pots Always on the Wood Stove Burning for a Friend, and Family Drops By. At 74, all of my peers grew up in a 1,000-square-foot house. Why isn't that size house built? And this is signed from Bruce in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We thank you. Bruce, we thank Retriever Buddy. I want to thank uh, all those who have signed up for the free weekly email newsletter I write for the Center for Civil Society at Amphil. And that used to be called American Philanthropic. We were trying to help uh, strengthen civil society. And the name of my newsletter is Civil Thoughts. And if you'd like to get it, go to civilthoughts.com, sign up. Again, it's free. comes every Friday. 14 recommended readings. And no charge and no risk. We're not selling your name. So anyway, thanks to those who have done that. Thanks to all who have listened today. Victor, thank you for all the wisdom you shared. And folks, oh, happy Hanukkah to my brothers and sisters in uh, in Abraham. Uh, God bless you all. And we uh, will be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening. 